Hello, my name is Rob Cutforth, and this is the end of all things. Today is part two of my two-part Christmas special. This interview with the really, I almost, I'm kind of struggling with whether I should swear or not on the podcast. And I just about said really fucking cool, Kit DeWall. Kit DeVall, whatever. Should I swear? Should I mispronounce her name? No. Do you know, I never did actually ask her how to pronounce her surname. So I don't know if it's DeWall or DeVall. I'm, I'm just going to call her Kit from now on. Like we're really old proper mates. Not that we're really old or just that we're, we've been mates for a really long time, you know. So yes, this is, interview is with me and my old pal Kit, or Kitty as I call her. I have never, ever called her that and never will. Uh, this intro is already bullshit. <laughs> uh, as you have probably guessed, I am still in my little box room that I call a studio because I don't know. I've just, I, I've not found a new place to record and this is just where it's going to happen. I'm not going to lie to you. I recorded what you are listening to now straight after I recorded the intro to Garth. I think I said in that one that I'm doing this so that I won't be, that I won't be able to do my writing. So I will be able to do some writing. So I wonder if I got any writing done this week or if I spent it drinking instead. I have three Christmas dues to go to. I hope I got some writing in. I'm sure I did. I've got to hand in some stuff to my MA supervisor, so I'm sure I must have got something done. There was a whole reason why I did both of these intros at the same time. My two-part Christmas special. Anyway, hello from the past. I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but, well... I've mentioned it in this podcast already, but I don't know if I mentioned it before in an earlier podcast, but the taught element of my MA is now finished completely, and I am now into writing my dissertation, aka the same fucking novel I've been writing for 10 plus years. By the way, you know this podcast that you're listening to right now. I got the mark back for that. And I think this is my MA project. There's a project element to the MA, and this was mine. And I got 85%, which I am to understand is a pretty unheard of mark in the world of UK academia. I actually had a couple personal congratulations from other lecturers, which was a first. You know, not bad for some dummy with no undergrad degree, eh? That was too smug. Too smug. As if it's... Not, this podcast isn't me, me, me enough. I actually talk about the book I'm writing for my dissertation a bit in the interview with Kit at the beginning. I promise you it's because Kit asked me about it. I did not go up to her and say, hey, Kit, fuck your dumb book. Let's talk about my amazing book. She started it. I was going to actually edit it out because, let's face it, no one listening to this podcast wants to hear about my stupid book. They want to obviously hear about the proper author talking about the proper book, but the discussion that we have about it prompts a really lovely conversation about MAs in general and writing groups. So I left it in. I mean, it's not, it's obviously not the only reason I left it in. I, I do like it when real authors talk to me about my own writing. It's happened a couple times, actually. It's really strange how when we've 
Sometimes I cut it out and sometimes I don't. But there's quite a few authors, and I'll, Kit was especially good at it, and so was Tanya Hirschman. I mean, I could have almost have done an entire podcast talking about my writing because they're so generous with their time and they want to help people with their own writing. So you get a lot of that in this podcast. But, I mean, I did leave it in for other reasons, obviously. I like it when they talk about my writing. And at some point, I have to sell this book. So whatever. Just get off my back, all right? It's my podcast. I can put in whenever I like. Obviously, the bulk of the interview is devoted to Kit's first novel, My Name is Leon, which, by the way, has just been nominated for the Costa First Novel Award, which really helps this podcast. So thanks for that, Kit. <laughs> me, 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 me. Again, shut up, Rob. Kit talks to me in this podcast episode like I'm some sort of contemporary, uh, despite the fact she's never read the book, uh, my book, because I think she, I mean, she clearly likes writers. Uh, that comes through and there is not one ounce of snobbery about her, despite the fact her book went to auction and had every big publisher out there fighting over it. Imagine it must be pretty difficult to keep your feet on the ground when Penguin and Random House and Orion are bidding to publish your book, your first novel. But somehow she's managed it. She, You will tell in this podcast she's very, very much got both feet on the ground, more so than me, and I've got nothing podcast. Nothing podcast? Nothing published. Oh, yeah. And she talks about the auction itself in this, which is so great. The point of this podcast, uh, as I've mentioned several times, is that it educates as well as entertains. And uh, it was originally supposed to be just for new writers. But often I get caught up in the fun of it. And just, you know, I'll when they're talking, when the people I'm talking to are talking about their book and you know that large lot of times that is a much more fun conversation and I get kind of caught up in that and then I remember oh yeah I need to ask some questions for new writers to how to how do people get published and blah 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 so they're usually just tacked on and I you know it's quite obvious you're like oh yeah now it's time for me to do my new writer questions but this one is different because Kit is very open with new with advice for new re, re, ugh, new writers and in this interview, she talks about uh, all kinds of stuff. She talks about writing groups, she talks about critiquing, she talks about MAs in creative writing. And most interestingly for me, she talks about beginning a writing career in your 40s. If you, you know, like me, are getting a proper late start, a proper late start, how long have I lived in Manchester? Proper late start. If you're getting a late start on your writing career, I guarantee you, this will be the most encouraging, the most heartening, and the most promising interview you will have ever heard as far as getting your stuff published as an old person. <laughs> old person is not the right word. Someone in your 40s or 50s. Uh, I know those are big words, saying that this is the best one you'll hear. But hey, I've not heard anyone talk as openly or as positively about it as Kit does. And frankly, even if you don't believe what she says... All you have to do is look at what's actually happened to her and um, realize that there is really is hope for everybody. It's I know there's it's it's very easy for writers to be bogged down by negative advice, and especially from this podcast, because I'm a jaded so and so. But if you listen to a lot of established writers, you will hear many of them say, well, most probably, that you know, writing is a young person's game. Nobody reads novels anymore. Writing is a 
thing is completely dead. There's no money in it. Writing's for suckers. Don't even bother. Why even pick up a pen? Go do something interesting instead. Go take philosophy or something. I won't mention names here about who said that to me. But I'll give you a hint. His name rhymes with Blil Blelf. Well, what I'm trying to say is ignore Blil Blelf and listen to Kit Duvall. This podcast is literally about dreams coming true. I mean, proper unicorn and rainbow level dreams, which I realize is very much not in the usual spirit of this podcast. But hey, it's Christmas, man. Uh, Don't worry, we do talk about racism and Brexit as well, obviously. So, you know, you can't be too happy. We can't let you be too happy. This interview, like the Garth Greenwell interview, happened before Dickface McGee was elected president which is why it doesn't come up in the conversation. I imagine Kit has something to say about that. I'm going to try to get her on again when her second book comes out, and we can have a moan about that as well. Maybe not. I'm assuming people must be pretty sick of it already. Uh, It's boring. Move on, loser. Trump is like, so last week. For those of you who aren't new writers, we obviously talk about the, the book itself, Easily one of my favorite books of the year. And it is a tiny bit spoilery. Um, I mentioned how spoilery it is in the interview itself, but when I've listened to it back, I don't think it's too bad because I think most of the stuff we talk about happens very early in the book. And if you know anything about the book itself, you'll probably know that it's about adoption and it's about two brothers being broken up uh, in order for one of them to be adopted and all the stuff that goes around that. I think that happens pretty early in the book, if if memory serves. It's been a couple months since I read it now. But because the book is largely about adoption, we spend an age talking about that. Um, Because besides the fact that that's what the book is about, Kit's worked in adoption. I was going to say the adoption industry, but that's not the right thing to say, is it? In adoption for years and years. And she's adopted kids herself. And I find the whole adoption thing utterly fascinating as a person with no kids, really. Um, The idea that you know, brothers and sisters can be broken up, uh, the racial politics behind it, and most especially the uh, idea that children in the system can, and very often, go through to adulthood without ever being adopted. I mean, it's an amazing chat, if I do say so myself. An amazing chat that I have very little to do with. But uh, Kit is, I, I do spend quite a lot of time on this adoption angle because it's... Mind-blowing. You will notice that this interview is in two parts, sort of. Uh, The beginning bit is in the hotel bar she's staying in, so you'll hear some really crap music and a rather noisy family who decided to just sit next to us. Despite, like, I mean, the whole of the pub was empty, and it was massive, except for... So I purposefully put us to this tiny little corner, surrounded by empty tables, and these people decided to come and sit right next to us. Does saying how much I hate families work in a podcast about adoption? Or maybe it's weirdly appropriate. I don't know. Inappropriate, probably. It's too late. I've already said it. Anyway, the point is, we move the interview uh, away from the noisy pub quite quickly. So you only have to deal with that 
the noise of the kids and the music for a few minutes, and then we go into uh, her ultra quiet room, basically. So that it, so hang in there. The children's and the crap music is temporary. And yes, I realize the whole going to her room thing sounds suggestive as fuck. But hey, there's really no other way to say it. You probably figured out it's in a hotel room from the photo, and I have to mention it. You know what? I don't have to explain myself. Just shut up, you. Here she is now, Kit Duvall. Listen. So you're a writer. Mm. What do you write? Struggling. I write... Um, I'm currently writing a novel. Uh, it's basically kind of a sci-fi, post-apocalyptic-y mm-hmm. Manchester, basically. So it's... Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's writing something that nobody wants, basically. Are you sure about that? Well, I don't know. Everybody, I've, every agent and publisher I've spoken to, they will say that uh, nobody reads that anymore. Really? Mm. Anymore? Like there's been a glut of them? There's been, there was a glut of them, I guess. After the in, road? Yeah. Around the time of the road. And they just don't sell anymore, apparently. So who knows? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how much to believe anyway. The trends change all the time. I would believe that. Yeah. I think there's always room for a good book. Yeah, well, hopefully. Yeah, I think so, too. Have you got an agent? No, I haven't got an agent yet. I I wrote this book. This is the second or third iteration of this book. And I sent it out to agents, uh, I guess, about two, three years ago. And I got some attention from a couple agents that really liked it. Uh, But they wanted loads of changes. And I made some changes. And they said, oh, those changes aren't enough. And I thought, well, I'll try this self-publishing thing instead. And it was the, probably a colossal mistake, really. What did they want you to change? I mean, the substance of it? They wanted it to be more tense. They wanted to, to up the tension. They wanted, they wanted lo- loads of quite specific changes. Right. Um, but, it, and to be honest, now that I've rewritten it, I can see what they were talking about. I've, I've now done it. I'm doing an MA at the same time in creative writing. Where are you doing it? MMU. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. So, and they, the lecturers and stuff basically said the same thing the agents were saying. So, I think it's been good. Yes. <laughs> that it's turned yeah. out this way. And I've read my book now, the one that I put out, and I can, I'm, I, you know, you, I agree with them now that you're seeing it. But you do there, have so. to see it. You do have to see it yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can just be buffeted by the wind. No. You have to see it, and you have to go, right, that's yeah. okay, I get it. Yeah. Uh, that's hard. Yeah. That's a hard lesson. And also, I think what is good about having a new reader for your work, for anybody at all, whether or not they're in a writer's group or a tutor, mm. is that they are coming to it clean. They mm-hmm. don't, you know, you haven't said, look, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic, yeah. blah, blah. You, you've given no context. Yeah. And the less context that you have when you pick up a book, the better from my point of view. Do you think? The, yeah, because the book has to do the work. Yeah. The book has to tell you in the first chapter. If I pick up a book in Waterstones, I haven't got anyone sitting on my shoulder saying, oh, by the way, it's set in 1849. Mm-hmm. If I can't work yeah. out that it's set in 1849 from the text, mm-hmm. fail. Right. So you need to mm-hmm. have it on the page because, of course, we all get book recommendations mm-hmm. and, of course, we all hear stuff. But many, many readers go to Waterstones, are seduced by a cover, mm-hmm. pick up a book, page to, turn to page 63 or to per, turn to the first page and start reading. 
And so the book has to do the work. The, the words have to do the work. Mm-hmm. Not how much they like you or your great reputation, but mm-hmm. actually the words on the page. But how do you know whose opinion to trust? I don't think you do know whose opinion to trust, but you do have a feeling when you get fa- feedback of chime. I do anyway. Like some, I've had feedback on my work lots of times, and some of it has been utter shite, mm-hmm. and some of it has been out of jealousy, mm-hmm. or someone's had an axe to grind, mm-hmm. or someone's just told me something for my own good, and they're right, and I couldn't hear it because I wasn't ready. Um, and then sometimes someone says something to you and you go, yeah, that's right. And I think you know when someone gets your work because they can identify what you're trying to say and they can identify the passages you know that work. Mm-hmm. You know you know in your book, as I do in my book, there are mm-hmm. passages that are just nailed. You know, mm-hmm. they are so good and they work. And I think when you have a reader that identifies what you already know mm-hmm. and then you have some bits where you feel dodgy and yeah. you feel a weak and they yeah. go there's your weak bit and you yeah. think yeah I know that well that was true yeah um, or else it, or if they've, if they've met, found a piece that you know works well and they've agreed with that but then they tell you something you don't agree with yes but because they've because they they've identified something beforehand absolutely you, then you, you can look at trust it again. them yeah, yeah it's not someone that's trying to shoot you mm-hmm. down it's not yeah. someone that's trying to destroy your work but it's actually someone who is trying to help you improve yeah and I think that's important. Yeah. You also, are you a lecturer as well? Cause you I do, do guest lectures. I don't work as a okay. lecturer, but I do guest slots all the time at universities. Okay, so you also have like a creative writing scholarship yes. or something. How, do, how does that work? Um, what happened is when I got my deal with Penguin, when Penguin accepted uh, my book for publication, I got a lot of money. I mean, it's no secret I got a lot of money. Uh-huh. And I set up a scholarship for one writer to do a full-time creative writing MA mm-hmm. at Birkbeck University. Okay. All the fees paid, um, a lot of money for travel and subsistence so that wow. the writer could get there and could have a cup of coffee and mm-hmm. could get home. And I also didn't want it to be a London-centric thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be able to be... Uh, you know, for people from the suburbs, from from wherever, mm-hmm. from quite a long way away to apply for it. Mm-hmm. So I made enough travel that you could actually probably travel from two hours away to get there, okay, if necessary. Um, and so put in a lot of money for it, and mm-hmm. that scholarship then grew into two, you know, two scholars, and then the top five people also got some stuff. So wow. it just it grew. I Is mean, it a yearly thing? I've done it once so far okay. uh, for a two-year part-time course, Okay. Um, £5,000 each year, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think I'll stop, to yeah. be honest. I don't think I'll be able to stop. Does that mean you've got to write a book every year to get some more money from Penguin? To... Um, well, <laughs> I've, I've had a lot of authors, actually, a lot of established authors have contacted me wanting to contribute. So Wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, there's a lot of generosity out mm. there. It's really good. Yeah. I guess one of the parts of this this podcast this is a thing about this podcast more than anything I'm glad you brought it up um, I'm not gonna ask you how much money you got but it's it's basically um, trying to find ways of getting money in any way yeah. for writers how did you approach penguin um, and how did uh, how did that come about basically okay 
So um, I got an agent through a recommendation from another agent. So an agent that said, it's not for me, but try this agent. And that agent was interested. And she submitted the manuscript to eight authors, eight publishers, sorry. And it went to auction. And when your book goes to auction, it just goes up, goes up, goes up, if they like you. And they did like me. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, I knew nothing like, uh, never heard of a book going to auction. Mm. I didn't know the process. I'd never heard of it happening except for, you know, massive people, and usually celebrity biographies. Yeah. Um, but this was just this tiny little book that I had written about a little boy it was like a nothing, you know, mm. how come it captured people's imagination, but it did. Uh, so it went to auction over the pro over a week. That means that within that week, I go and visit everyone that's bidding. And there were six people bidding. Orion, Penguin, Random House, lots of just the big names that you've ever heard of. And at the interviews with the uh, publishers, they say, please come to us. I mean... Please come to us. We want you. Please come. We love your book. We will do this. We will do that. And I was like, you know, you go from as a writer, we don't want it. No thanks. We don't want it. Yeah. No thanks. We don't want it. No, you've yeah. got to change it. To please come to us. And it was the most bizarre thing. For a debut novel as well. For a debut novel. Wow. And I remember on like the third day of visiting different publishers, I met my agent for a cup of coffee and I said what's going on mm -hmm. what is this what have I missed is there something in the news at the moment about what I'm mm -hmm. writing about so that it's so current and flavour and she just went people want your book don't think about it just enjoy it well you should think about it because then you know how to do it next time yeah as well. <laughs> yeah absolutely and in the end I went with Penguin because that was my dream to have a book published with Penguin um, yeah and I got a deal for two novels and a collection of short stories. And it was, you know, it is every writer's dream. It That's is. what we want. brilliant. Yeah, it was great. Wow. Um, so how did the book come about? So I had written, uh, I started writing probably when I was seriously writing when I was about 45. Mm -hmm. And I have to say before, like that gives hope, gives me hope massively. Because yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And when I say started writing at 45... This was without reading a book on writing. This mm -hmm. was just dabble, totally dabbling. And I wrote uh, a screenplay. I wrote a thriller about a Norwegian gangster. <laughs> I wrote a book about a prostitute. I wrote about, they say, write what you know. That's what I knew. So mm -hmm. that's what I wrote. And they were rubbish. I mean, frankly, rubbish. Mm -hmm. Didn't work. Bits of them did. I hadn't, didn't know anything about structure. I didn't know anything about tension didn't know anything about how to actually put the words down on the page. You know, what should your page look like? Mm -hmm. How much white is on the page? Is it in double line spacing? None of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I was just splurging it all out. And I had, I knew bits of it worked and I knew bits of it was successful. I also knew I didn't know enough. So I decided to do an MA in creative writing. And as I was writing the MA, in fact, just as I finished the MA, I started this book. Um, the book My Name is Leon and I wrote the book because I felt 
had to get it out of my system and then I'd go back to my thrillers. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I just thought, I know I've got to write that book. That book has to be written. Mm -hmm. um, and it wrote itself nine months probably, mass, max. Mm. Um, and it was, sounds so revoltingly trite and literary, <laughs> but it felt like taking dictation. It was just like, that's going to happen, that's going to happen, yeah. that's going to happen. There's no, all those things that you learn about structure and the architecture of a book came naturally to that story. And when I say they came naturally, that makes out like I hadn't, I didn't work at it, but I had worked at it by writing these rubbish books, knowing mm -hmm. they didn't work, by taking an MA in creative writing. And so all that stuff, I think, just came together. The years and years of writing on my own, the um, nuts and bolts of craft that I learnt at university just seemed to fuse mm -hmm. in this book. So it just worked. Do you think you could have written it if you were 30? Absolutely not. Mm. I couldn't have written it when I was 30 because I was just full of shit and I was really <laughs> cocky. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought I knew what I was talking about. And I would have thought I'd have been very tempted to change the ending. I think I would have made it more sensational. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, at 51, 53, no, 54, <laughs> actually, when the book was published, by that time, I had sort of realised there is no black and white. I don't think there's black and white in any area of life whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so the book is full of the contradictions of real life and the contradictions of people and the issues that arise in everybody's life. And there's no good and there's no bad. I don't believe mm -hmm. that. Don't believe that. You know, good people do bad things and bad people do good things. And that's basically what I believe and what I've seen over the many years I've worked with difficult people and damaged people. And I wanted that to be true. So I was much more interested when I was writing My Name is Leon in being true and not being clever. So I would look at everything that happened to Leon and I would say, is this true? Mm -hmm. Would this really happen? Would she behave like that? How would he feel about that? And put down the truth. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if that... I didn't obviously know I was ever going to get it published. Mm -hmm. So I was being true to the work um, with no notion that anyone was ever going to read it beyond my mm -hmm. friends. And I think that's one reason people respond to it the mm -hmm. way they do. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the one thing that stood up for me with the book is, like you said, there's no judgment at all, like zero, absolutely yeah. zero judgment on anybody. Yeah. I mean, even uh, Leon's parents. Yeah. Uh, not Leon, well, Leon's mother. Yes. Who, you know, in another book, yeah. you, you would think, oh, God, she's awful. Yes. But you really empathize with her. And not only that, but Jake's, the people that um, adopt Jake. Adopt Jake. Absolutely. You know, ordinarily, you would think, oh, you know, and, it, and when it first happens, you know, it's devastating because they're splitting up. Yes. Two brothers. And yes. I don't know there's spoilers in this. I hope that's okay. No, put all the spoilers okay, in. Absolutely. But I think that it's incredible that when you're reading it, at first you do kind of, and this happens with a number of characters, where at first you think, oh, this guy's an asshole. But then you really, you get to know the person a lot yes. more. And, and even yeah. with Jake's parents, the, the, the people that adopt Jake and take him away from Leon, yeah. you understand why it's absolutely. happening. Absolutely. And um, the fact that, you know, when they say, well, it, it and the adopt, even the people that work for the adoption agency, where you think, you know, if you would have, if you read a news report on it, you think these evil Absolutely. bastards. Absolutely, yes. Who would, why, how could they split up two brothers? They, yeah. They're monsters. Yeah. But that just doesn't come across in the book no. at all. And, and, it's, and it's true. I work in, uh, I work for the adoption panel and work on an adoption panel rather. 
And that decision that the adoption panel made to split those brothers up, I've had to make that decision. So I know you don't make it easily. You make it with a heavy heart, mm -hmm. but you make it um, on the basis that your choices are just utter shit. You know, your, your choices are not to have both of these boys adopted by a two-parent family that can look after them and let them play with the lions and the tigers and the... Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let them have this fluffy world. Yeah. Um, that's not an option. So what you have are all bad choices and you have to make the least bad choice. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted, again, that to be the truth of the situation and that um, they've done this terrible thing for good reason. Mm -hmm. It's funny because you said in other interviews that you didn't want this to be a book on social commentary no. or a political book of any, no. and of any um, consequence, which is funny because when you mentioned things like... Um, the Irish, um, the um, what are the, what's the actual word for it? The, the when they were starving themselves. Oh, the hunger strikers. The hunger strikers, yes. and you've got like the the riots and stuff. Yes, so yeah. you've got that stuff in it, but it doesn't read like a political book no, at all. No, um, which no, is I, I I couldn't stand to do that. I mm. couldn't bear to write something that was saying, "Oh, look what's happening to this boy <laughs> in this terrible time." That's just by the by, mm -hmm. because this is about Leon and Leon's story. And you know, when you're nine and you're having your and your world shit, you don't care about the hunger strikers. You don't care about the riots. You don't mm -hmm. care about the royal wedding. That's all just piffle. That's all just going on in the background. Because what you care about are your action men and your brother and where's my mom and how can I have a sweet and can I have some chocolate? And I constantly want all that stuff's going on and it's real and it's true. But for Leon, what's real and true is his heartbreak. And I, I constantly wanted to just have it going on in the background, mattering as much to Leon as we care about, very often, um, children in care, which is not very much as a society. You know, when do we think about a nine-year-old and whether or not he's got the right toys or what school he's gone to? Lots of us you know, obviously for good reason, we're living our lives, don't think about those children. Mm. And those children don't think about what we care about either. Yeah, and I, I don't think many people think about pe uh, children who never get adopted. No. I think it's just it's one of those things where you just assume, well, kids just get adopted. Absolutely, um, yes. Whereas you don't actually give much thought to kids who actually grow up in the system That's right. without parents. Yeah. And is that something that, is that quite a... Oh. A, see, I, honestly, I, I knew I'm so naive. No, no, truly, it's... Lots of children get adopted. More children don't. There are children that stay in the care system from three mm -hmm. to 18, and they might have 12 moves, 40 moves if they're really naughty. Mm -hmm. They may go to a home, then go to a foster parent, and then go to another foster parent at the weekend, and then have respite care, and go back to your parents for three weeks, and then go back into care. And these moves... You Go know, back with their, their real parents. Oh, yeah, sometimes. So you might have a foster child who, let's say um, her mother, the mother's on uh, drugs, and so the child goes into care because it's not being cared for properly, and the mother goes into rehab or gets her act together, and she does get her act together, and yet yeah, I'm ready to have the children back, and she really looks like she's got her act together. And so the children go back, or this child goes back, and the child's back for six months, and then something happens, and she goes back on the drugs, back into care, and that can go on for years and years with the children going to and from um, re being rehabilitated with their parents and back. And then it might be a grandmother comes forward and says, I'll be the carer. 
and so forth. Mm. And those children have what's called a care career of them just developing into adults slowly and damaged by multiple attachments that are broken and formed and broken and formed. And a lot, not some children have fantastic lives in care, um, but some of them are damaged by that constant moving and constant being um, forced mm -hmm. to. Oh, I'm in this family. I'm not in this family. I'm in that family. I'm not in this family. And they 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 break their attachments, and some of them never recover from that. Mm -hmm. um, do you think uh, one of the things in the book that you talk about uh, is once the the brothers are separated, they actually the parents uh, the people that have adopted Jake basically yeah. send yes uh, Leon. Uh, Photograph. So is there? And this is just probably a question just for me because I want a happy ending in this book. Yeah. It, is it possible in the adoption system? Is it possible that the brothers could have a no. relationship, none at all, afterwards? Um, no. Like when they grow up to to be adults. Oh yeah, when yeah. they grow up to be adults, um, you can have a system now where you can register your interest in your sibling at mm. a particular organisation, and if that sibling also registers, you can get in touch. But they both have to register for this thing. Absolutely, you can't. You can't send an email, or no. you know, can't can't contact that no. brother saying Not your other brother's looking for you. You can't. I mean, you can because. In the world of Facebook now, if mm. you know the name oh, yeah, of, of your brother, yeah. you might put them into Facebook and so forth. Mm. But if you take that out of the equation, you can't just get a pri private detective on the go. People mm. do, and it's not always the best way of doing it. There are actual organisations that you can contact who can arrange for you to meet that person if that person wants to be contacted by you. And very some children, of course, grow up with being adopted without knowing they're adopted, mm -hmm. so they may never register their interest. Mm -hmm. Some birth parents have moved on, don't want to be contacted by their child that was adopted because they've had a whole new life, new children, and that's a secret from the past. So that still goes on, because you get the idea that the whole adoption thing is open these days. No. Oh, no. Right. No. I mean, open adoptions are encouraged, and the jury is still out on that, and whether that's the right thing to do. I believe it is. I'm very open with my children about them being adopted. Um, but it's not that straightforward mm. at all. And in certainly in the book, Jake and Leon may never meet again. And the very fact that he's got that photograph from the adoptive parents, that may not happen. Mm. That, that does not always happen. It could have been goodbye at the door, and that was it, goodbye at the door. Wow. So if you're... You don't have to answer this if you don't want yeah. to, but it's just because I'm nosy now. If your kid said to you yeah. they want to meet their birth parents, yeah. would you be like, yeah, yeah, fine, or would you just... I, I Because you probably know, and I'm not going to ask you what their birth parents are like, but I, you must know what the reason they want I know, to I know all, yeah, obviously all their history, and I never speak about my children and their own personal he histories. No, I know I don't have to. Um, but I, because I do believe in being open and honest, I, I would be fine. Um, but every parent is difficult and some birth, some adoptive parents feel very threatened by the existence of birth parents and, and, and that ongoing relationship. So it's by no means straightforward. Mm. Um, it's very complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Issue. And the book, it, it, there's a, another um, bit of the, the book between Jake and Leon. that It's along racial lines as well. Yes, yes. Uh, is that quite a common thing where it's... Absolutely. White parents just want a white baby, basically. Well, white babies are high currency in adoption. Gosh. So... Um, that just sounds so gross. It just... It's it's terrible and true. Any baby 
is very, very much, very easy. No, that's not true. Let me rephrase that. Much, much easier to get a baby adopted. A white, healthy baby, gold dust. I mean, totally, there would be, if you're an adoption agency or a local authority, you will have 30 or 40 parents that will adopt a healthy white baby. Um, the number of parents that you would have that would take a sibling group of a black boy and a white baby, you'll have nil on your books. Um, and the number of parents that will come forward to say, oh, actually, I'm looking for a 10-year-old mixed-race boy who's a bit light-fingered and who <laughs> loves yeah. his mom, Nil. Mm. Nil. So, um, yeah, definitely white babies, very, very, very easy to have adopted. Yeah. Very easy. Do you think it's just because there's there's a lot more white parents that are looking for kids? And I, I don't know. I'm just playing yes. devil's advocate, really. There are. There are a lot more white parents that are looking but for But they're children. less likely. They, they don't want a, a child that isn't white, basically. No, there are. There are definite birth par- uh, white parents that will adopt a black baby, most mm-hmm. definitely. Um, there aren't that many um, babies full stop coming into the care system now because there is less stigma on single parents. Um, because there's better birth control, um, lots of reasons that there are lots less, a lot less babies. So that's a that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. Yeah. That's an absolutely good mm. thing. Um, but that does mean that babies become super currency. They mm. become really really God. wanted because a lot of parents come to adoption after years of trying to have their own and not having their own, and what they want is the baby experience. That's not to say all adoptive parents are like that. But a lot of children, a lot of parents think with some justification that the younger the child, the less the damage. Mm-hmm. That is not always true mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's so rewarding to look after an older child mm. and a child that's aware of how lovely their life is. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I don't want to dwell on that. I, I, no, I, no, no, but it's fine. I just find it really fascinating, the yes. whole adoption thing, yeah. really. Um, one of the things about uh, Jake, uh, Jake Leon, that um, I really loved in this book, is the freedom yes, that he has. Yes. And I, I'm not because I don't know if it's because it, it, the book takes place in the '80s, yeah. or if it's because he's in an adoptive family. And um, but there's something really I don't know if we're, that I think other kids are missing. That totally. it, the the kind of he's just got the run of the neighborhood yeah. really. Yeah. So that's another one of the other um, things that you do in the book where you kind of, you, like I say, could, you could make it look like he's having this terrible life because he's in the system yes. and stuff. But he actually has quite a he nice a life, great, doesn't he? Yeah, he's having a great time. I mean, it's there's a lot of joy in the book. And certainly when I wrote it, I didn't want, you know, I never intended it. I mean, people contact me and say, you know, I cried. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you cried. But I think it's quite, you know, it's, it's quite a happy book to I me. I agree. Um and Leon does have this freedom. And I mean, partly that's because PlayStations haven't been invented or mobile <laughs> phones. Um, but mostly because he is a joyful boy. He's a happy boy and he's capable of being happy and seeing the good in his life. And so this gift of a bike opens the world to him and it makes him think, wow, you know, I can go fast and I'm making all these new friends and I'm going to the allotment. And that's sort of running alongside the grief that he has about losing his brother. So he does most definitely have this lust for life and this the ability to be happy. I mean, that's what's lovely about Leon. He has the ability to be uh, healed and happy and have fun in his life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that, that's that's one of the things that I, I love the most. And I think that's one of the reasons why the book is so readable, really, because mm. nobody wants to. I mean, it's. I think there's books, there's other books where you read them and, you know, it's in, they're important books yes. and you really need to, you know, they need to be aware, made aware of something and it's really political. Yeah. And I think the fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, but because this was written by um, you, a, a person who isn't 20 or 30, who yeah. doesn't have any kind of agenda. Yeah. You do get kind of a really a warm sense of I think every character. Um, you don't feel like there's any kind of um, I, I know I've said this already, but judgment on anybody. Yes, just, yeah. I, the other thing that you you've uh, been I, I wouldn't say famous, but a lot of things that you're pushing is working class stories. Yes. Um, why don't you think working class stories are being heard at the moment? Um, I think um, there's a, a number of reasons. Um, I think because the tradition of what constitutes good literature comes from the middle classes mm-hmm. um, and certainly what we read at school and what we are taught and what we describe as the canon is essentially writers about writing about the middle classes or by the middle classes certainly by educated classes um, and I think we grow up with a notion of what that is and we I don't know who decides what good literature is but it certainly is decided somewhere beyond me mm-hmm. Um, and so I think writing class, working class writers are, first of all, trying to eat and pay the electricity bill. Um, and we'll be writing, you know, in the time that's left. Also, if they are going to write about what they know, sometimes that isn't valued by society and certainly isn't valued by gatekeepers like literary agents. Um, this is partly going to come out in the talk I'm going to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um And the people that read those stories don't often come from the backgrounds that are depicted in those stories. And also because I think sometimes as working class writers, we don't always value our own stories. We think we've got to be writing something wow or different or from another place. But actually, the drama, as demonstrated by My Name is Leon, there is a lot of drama in the very, very ordinary, the very ordinary lives that we I'd argue more. I, I totally agree. I mean, mm. that's me. That's me, totally. I, I, the domestic drama, to me, is the book, mm-hmm. is absolutely what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. The big explosions and the holocausts and the, you know, all those big events and the political upheaval, of course they're great mm-hmm. and they tell us something about the world. But for me, my interest is in interrelationships, relationships be, be, between people and the way stories turn on um, the way someone buttoned their jacket or what someone didn't say or when someone blinked and they shouldn't have. And the whole world collapse or grow out of the minutiae of life. And that's, to me, the most fascinating thing about mm-hmm. literature. But it's not to say that a working class person couldn't write you know a, a space and should yeah and should i mean um, middle class and upper class writers um they write about what they want they don't say oh actually you know i'm a middle class writer therefore i've got to write about someone with a house in fulham mm-hmm. and a volvo uh, who's a banker mm-hmm. they don't restrict their views and their subject matter to what they know mm-hmm. they write about anything they want and as working class writers we too have the right and should write about whatever 
interests us. It could be the 18th century, it could be space travel, it could be our own lives. But we shouldn't restrict ourselves because all of our experiences as working class writers will inform those stories too mm-hmm. um, because we are moulded by our environment and mm-hmm. our identity and that will come out in the writing. Mm-hmm. But I think we need support, money, time and industry appreciation and industry invitation to have those stories up there on the shelf. Do you think there's just there's no industry appreciation because everyone in the industry is like middle class or I think that's I think there is an element of that. I'm forty three percent of publishing personnel are from the middle classes as opposed to fourteen percent as a whole. So publishing is really populated by people from a middle class background. Um, so I think there is gatekeeping going on. If you talk to, for example, I'm from Birmingham, which is about an hour on the train from London. Um, but you often hear people from London talk about Birmingham as the north or um, oh, it's gritty. Well, it's, it's not really gritty. You know? Grim. Yeah, grim. It's grim up north mm-hmm. um, or it's um, urban. Well, you know, most of the north is not urban. Mm-hmm. Most of the world beyond London is not urban. It's countryside. There's, do you know what I mean? There mm-hmm. are fields. Yep. It's not all tower blocks in Middlesbrough. Um, and I think there is, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you a story of a friend okay. of mine who is a, um, a judge. And she was going to a court in from London and she was going to a court in Stoke-on-Trent. And she said, perhaps we can meet for lunch. And I said, I'm an hour and a half from Stoke. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But in her mind, it's all like collapsed together. If it's north of the M25. Exactly. It's the north. It Mm -hmm. is the north. So I'll meet you for lunch. You know, you're nowhere near me. And I think that is an indication of how the the, London sucks the world in. Mm -hmm. It sucks everything in and judges everything on on the basis of how different it is to London, mm-hmm. um, whereas it, 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 you know, the rest of the country has its own identity, mm-hmm. and, and Leeds isn't Manchester, and mm-hmm. Manchester isn't Newcastle, and none of its crew. You know, they're mm-hmm. all entirely different places mm-hmm. with their own identity and their own things to say, mm-hmm. and I think that needs to be understood and appreciated far more than it is by the London literati, and it has to, and we have to value our stories. We have to think that if we are writing about Crewe or Northumberland, that it's worth reading about and that people are interested because mm-hmm. people are interested. So do you think that there's a, there's a big move for people in the north, in northern communities that, to write stories about London? Or it, it, I don't. I, I don't think... Or they really, just don't think that... They don't bother going into writing because they don't think there's any point. I think it's, it's, a, it's a question about chicken and egg. Are there writers not writing their stories because they aren't reading them in the first place right um or is it the fact that we need to write them to find those new audiences and i think part of it is we there are new audiences out there and i would and i do when i read a book and it's about where i come from or it's about something that happened to me i love it Mm -hmm. it's different yeah you know i think oh that's true that's Mm. what it's like yeah. And I think there are people that read that all the time when they read about their own lives. And then there are people like me that don't read that very often because my life isn't very often on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's interesting. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it, it might be largely because of people like me who live from outside of England yes. who've never heard of Manchester, Birmingham. Yes, but, yes, yeah. absolutely. So there's no judgment. I did have a friend that was published in America first, and even though her book was about a small town near Wolverhampton, mm-hmm. but she pub- she published in America, and of course they have no concept of where even that is in the country or mm-hmm. what package comes with Wolverhampton um, so they published her there and she was very very successful but I bet it's because uh, North Americans are probably more fascinated by the foreign and more accepting yes. of it because we're thinking whoa it's like reading about a different planet yes exactly is, whereas London is like ugh it's just up north absolutely what's the point yeah it's 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 not valued I think mm. and it's not appreciated for yeah. the masses uh, of people that are out there that have something to say. Right. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask you one more thing. Sure. This, I only wrote this down today just because okay. of what's happened. <laughs> I don't know if I'll leave this in. What do you think about this whole Brexit thing? I cannot believe that we are a nation that would vote for Brexit. I think it's utterly ghastly. My father's from the West Indies. Mm-hmm. My mother's Irish. There's no part of me that's English at all. Yeah. Uh, no part of me that's British in that regard, uh, in in a heritage sense, but I am British, and the um, scaremongering and racism and xenophobia that I saw and still see now that Brexit's uh, a reality um, is one of the ugliest things I've ever seen, and I would give anything to have that ruling overturned. And I know today there's been a, a massive development in that. And I, I don't believe in God, but my God, I would pray that mm-hmm. that's overturned and yeah. that that comes to nothing. It's a disaster yeah. from my point of view. I've never seen uh, such open uh, hostility no. towards uh, just people openly, like yeah. just walking around. I've never, genuinely never seen anything like it. No. Um, where it's just people that are, I'm just happy to say horrible things Absolutely. to somebody on the street that I've never met before. It's um, awful. Yeah. I, I was in Ireland. Um, when, Bre- when the actual vote was happening and mm-hmm. I gave my husband uh, my proxy vote, I was so you know determined to have a vote, but I, I couldn't be in the country. Mm-hmm. So he had the vote and I was on the radio in Ireland and they said to me, so how do you think the vote will go when you know today? And I said, there's absolutely no trouble. There's no way we will vote to leave Europe. It's a storm in a teacup. I'm not even worried about mm-hmm. it. And I couldn't believe it the next day. And there's a part of me that still cannot believe that that happened. I can't. No, I can't either. And I'm so glad I have my Irish citizenship because I am still part of Europe. Tell you what, I'm, I'm uh, renewing my Canadian passport as well. It's Absolutely. crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you do start then mm. thinking of your exit strategy. Yeah. Should this country start goose-stepping its way off the cliff? I know. I, I don't think that's uh, over. That's an exaggeration. No, neither do I. Yeah. And, and I'm amazed to be saying that. And, yeah. Uh, my husband's family are, are Jewish refugees. They came to this country, you know, mm-hmm. before just before the Second World War. And some of the elements of the way this country is going is reminiscent of Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and Austria yeah. and how things start and get out of hand. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I had this exact same conversation. I don't want to end on that. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. What, what are you doing tomorrow then? So tomorrow I'm giving a talk to um, the creative writing uh, students and graduates uh, and I'm talking about cultural appropriation hmm. 
and I'm also talking about working class writers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so you've obviously heard the whole Lionel Shriver I thing. I have, but I'm going to refer to it. Oh, uh, this will come out after that. So you could say the same thing now that you're going to say tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you don't have to, I won't. I won't. But it's. Uh, I, I do have views on it. Mm. I do. I do think there is such a thing as cultural appropriation. Well, totally. And I think the thing. I the biggest problem I had with what she said was she was comparing, you know, frat, drunk frat boys yeah. in sombreros to white writers who, who yeah. couldn't write about other yeah. ethnicities. From oh, the pers- and so I think bad. I, like, that is, I can't, Arrogance. that's a le- leap of a, it's, it's complete. A, a chasm. And even what she says, and some of what she said had some value, the mm-hmm. arrogance of someone to dismiss cultural appropriation as a fad is... Uh, in in my view, you know, a crime mm-hmm. because there are cultures who have had their world and their rights and their religions and their precious things appropriated, and there are cultures that have not. Mm-hmm. And because if you're in the culture that has not lost anything, don't assume that those other cultures do not suffer because of it. So I mm-hmm. I will be referring to mm. that. Yeah, fantastic. I wish I would have gone to that but anyway i've got (laughs) i've got the stuff from you now thank you very much kid i really appreciate it thank you very much you see how good was that this is the last episode for 2016 i have to say there is a part of me that thinks i should just kind of shut it down now as i'm never going to be able to top those two interviews uh the interviews with garth and kit How weird are those names? I just noticed that now. (laughs) Wayne's World meets Knight Rider. You're not worthy, Michael. There's a series. Um, Anyway, I'm a bit afraid that in addition to the fact that the podcast may have just peaked, uh, that there's also a danger of it simply turning into a four-year Trump whinge, which no one really wants to listen to if it carries on. But I think I will. I'll keep going with it anyway, and we'll see what happens. I'm putting together an Arts Council bid, and actually as a result of this podcast, I've gained some pretty sweet contacts within the Arts Council system and other people who have gotten, gotten, who've received awards, who are helping me out, trying to fund this sucker. So if that happens, it will go on forever. But I could do with some fat stacks, man. 2017, like it or not, this is really kind of a nice way to finish will be the year my novel is finished like it or not it's it's going to be finished whether it's good or not who knows but this next year is the last year i will have be i will be writing it which is kind of crazy i can't wait to start getting rejected by agents again no 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 positive thoughts it's christmas look at kit look at all that cool stuff that happened to her yeah but her novel is really good and it's not about the end of the world or you know dumb 3d printers hers is a proper book Yes, but there there are people who like yours as well, Rob. I'm going to stop talking to myself. This has gotten really weird. 2017 will also see the end of my MA, and I will hopefully finish with my first ever degree. I'm not one, as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, for optimism, but I am going to put this out there and say I am 90% sure that I'm going to finish 2017 with a piece of paper with my name on it. And I don't want to tempt fate, but there's quite a good chance it will be a first if all my 
grades up to now or anything to go by. I shouldn't say that out loud. But even if the book fails to get published and the dream dies, at least people won't be able to do that demeaning, oh, you got a degree in life. I hate that. So hey, that's something. I will talk to you next month. Have a good Christmas and a new year. And I, you know, I hope what you're working on, if you are a writer, is going well. And what happened to Kit happens to you. Merry Christmas. Bye.